Amen. Take a Bible and open to Acts chapter 1. It's May, which means you've had four solid months of me uh, reminding you that we are reading the New Testament together this year. And I hope you're reading with us. I hope you're tracking along. Uh, The reading last week was John 18 to Acts 1. The reading this week is Acts 2 to Acts 6. I'm going to break the schedule. And Sunday we're going to talk about Acts chapter 4. So we're going to be in the right window on Sunday. But tonight I want to go backwards to Acts chapter 1. And originally this week what I really wanted to talk about was the preface to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 to 5. And I wanted to connect that with the preface of the Gospel of Luke. And I thought this will be a great way to move out of the Gospels and into the book of Acts. We're going to spend a couple of months working our way through Acts. And so this would be a a good introduction as we talk about the book of Acts. And I started to work on that. And then I decided I think we need to talk about Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. And the reason I switched from the preface to Acts 1, 6 through the end of the chapter is that as we went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we skipped all of the Great Commission passages. And so I just want to start off tonight thinking about these Great Commission passages. Versions of the Great Commission can be found in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts chapter 1. So... Jesus was crucified, Jesus was raised from the dead, and over a a period of about 40 days, Jesus appeared to his disciples. Sometimes he appeared to one disciple alone, sometimes he appeared to the apostles as a group. Uh, The Bible says that one time he appeared to a group of 500 who were gathered together, and so there were all of these appearances, Jesus resurrected from the dead, not just resuscitated, but resurrected from the dead in a glorified body, appearing to his disciples. And there are multiple instances of Jesus giving marching orders to the disciples, telling them what they were to do next in life. Now, usually, we talk about Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20 as the Great Commission. And I'll just put it up on the screen for you. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In fact, if you look that passage up in your Bible, the heading up above it might say, the Great Commission, and it is the Great Commission. It's the mission statement for our church. When we have a new members class, we talk to them about our vision. Our vision is that at Emmanuel, we believe God is with us for His glory, for the world, for our city, and for you, for individuals. That's our vision statement. Our mission statement is this passage, the Great Commission. So I'm not saying this isn't the Great Commission, but I'm just making the point that over these 40 days where Jesus is appearing to the disciples, they have lots of conversations. And Jesus tells them multiple times in multiple ways this. 
And he doesn't always say it word for word like this. And we're going to talk about these five great commission passages tonight. The one we're really going to focus on is Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. And the big idea of this version of the Great Commission is very simple. Jesus empowers his people to be witnesses. He empowers his people to be witnesses. We need to be empowered. We don't have the power to be witnesses on our own. So Jesus is going to empower us. He's going to do that through the person of the Holy Spirit. And the empowering that comes upon Jesus' people, Christian people, is so that we might be witnesses for him. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read this passage, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. We'll go through the end of the chapter. Scripture says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, into the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, 
and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that we've spent four months working through, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We thank you for these great commission passages in each of the gospels, at the end of each of the gospels. And we thank you for this fifth great commission passage at the beginning of the book of Acts. Lord, there's many details in this passage which we could quibble over and and fret over and worry about and analyze, but we just want to see the, the big overarching call on our lives. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see uh, what it is that you're calling us to as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you a quick story about my sister's wedding. I have one younger sister. There's two of us. She's about four years younger than me. Uh, we were living in Kentucky when she got married, and so my family made the trip back to Amarillo. Uh, Her name is Lindsay. She was marrying a guy and is still married to him named Chase. And I was not in the wedding. I was just glad to be there and to not have to preach or officiate or do anything like that. Just glad to be there at the wedding. So we make this trip home. We're, We're there at the wedding. My sister at the time worked for a bank. And she was doing all sorts of things for this bank. And the president of the bank where she worked was a car collector. And he offered to my sister, to Lindsay and Chase, would you like to use one of my cars for the wedding to take you from the church to the reception and to take you from the reception? And they said that would be wonderful. And the car that they selected from his collection was a 1961 pink convertible Cadillac. Any of you ever ridden in a car like this? This is what they picked from the collection. The bank president not only had a car collection, but he had a number of guys who would work for him, not full-time, but work for him driving these vehicles. And so he said, look, I'm going to set it all up for you. I'm going to give you my best driver, Willie. Willie's going to drive the Cadillac. The wedding's at 7. He'll be at the church at 6.30. He'll check in with you. He'll take you to the reception. He'll hang around. When the reception's over, he'll drive you home. Easy peasy, don't worry about it. So there we are at the wedding. My sister is a little bit high-strung. She's getting married, so you're high-strung when you're getting married, and she's just a high-strung person. And so she's high-strung, she's wound up. It's 6.30, there is no Willie, and there is no Cadillac. We got 30 minutes, it's okay, don't worry. And there's a lot of worrying going on. So since I had nothing to do, I was given a number. Willie's cell phone number. Your job is to track Willie down and to make sure he's here by 7.30. So I go out in the foyer and I get on the phone and I start calling Willie. And I call him and I call him and I call him. And finally, Willie answers the phone and he is clearly in a panic. And I explain to him who I am and why I'm calling and I say to him that you're late. And he says, I know that I'm late. I can't find the keys. I've washed it, I've gassed it, it's ready to go, I'm standing right beside it. I have no idea where the keys are. And at this point, it's about 6.45. And I said, well, here's the deal, you got about 30 minutes to figure something out. Like rip the wires out of the bottom, whatever they do in the movies, I don't know. 
but I'm about to walk in, and I'm going to turn my phone off, and you need to get here. Okay, I'm going to look, I'm going to, I'm going to look, I'm going to look. So I, I left my phone on, and at about 6.55, I get a phone call from Willie, and he says, I got the keys, I found them, I'm on my way. I said, great, do you know where the church is? Of course I know where the church is. It's right there on I-40. Great. See you at 7.30. I go into the service. It's a lovely service. Lasts about 10, 15 minutes like most weddings do these days. It's not a long service. We leave, and they're sort of doing wedding party things, and I go out to the parking lot to meet Willie. There's a lot of cars in the parking lot. There are no pink Cadillacs in the parking lot. So I get on the phone and I call and I say, Willie, where are you at? He says, I'm at the church. I said, which church? And he tells me, and he's at a church down the road. To which I wanted to say to Willie, did the absence of cars in the parking lot give you any pause that maybe you were at the wrong church? But I say, we're at Trinity Baptist Church on I-40 between Georgia and Washington. He says, I know exactly where it's at. I'll be there in five minutes. Don't worry. About seven, eight minutes later, he comes rolling up. There he is. He's very nice. He's very kind. He gets out. He makes a big deal of my sister and uh, her husband. And he gets them in the car. And everyone's excited. And we think, okay, this is good. He made it. No big deal. Everyone else doesn't know the stress that was, was involved. He gets in the car to take off. And the car won't move. And the parking brake is stuck. And he can't get it unstuck. And I think, well, this is it. This is where the, the whole thing ends, right here. This is, this, what are you going to do? It's stuck. Apparently, this happened to Willie a lot. He goes to the back. He gets a wrench. He goes to the parking brake in front of everyone who's standing there waiting for them to drive off. And he just starts banging on the parking brake. And it comes loose. And he says, I know how to get it loose. Don't worry. And they get in the car and they drive off to the reception. So we get to the reception, they're there, safe and sound, and uh, my job at the reception, reception was going to end at about 11 or 11.30, something like that. My job was to make sure Willie was there in place 30 minutes before we ended. And he was. He was there. 30 minutes before we ended, he showed up right on time, they got in the car, they drove off, and I thought, well, I've done my job, everything was okay, this is great. And about 10 minutes later, in the middle of Bell Street, the 1961 pink Cadillac ran out of gas. Completely out of gas, stopped in the middle of the road. Lindsay and Chase got out. They pushed it with Willie steering to the nearest fill-in station, and they put a couple of bucks in it, and he finally got them home. Acts chapter 1. Willie had a job, okay? Willie had a job. Be at the church at this time, pick these people up, take them to the reception, be there when the reception's over and take them home. It's a simple job. It's not complicated. From our perspective, Willie did everything in his power to mess that job up. Everything in his power to not do what his job was. In Acts chapter 1, we are given a job. 
followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a complicated job. I'm not suggesting to you that it's an easy job. It is not a complicated job. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you to be witnesses for Jesus. This dovetails with Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24 and John 20, all of which we'll talk about in a minute. Here's the job. Be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. I imagine that from the perspective of heaven, there are times looking down on the people of God throughout history where the Lord Jesus and the angels and all of the saints and all of the folks up in heaven look down and say, they are doing everything in their power to mess up the job. I mean, churches do a lot of stuff. You look at all of the different denominations, all of the different branches of Christianity, all of the activities, all of the things that happen under the umbrella of church. And you step back and you say, okay, all that's great. Are you doing the job that you were sent to do? And I imagine that at times it looks like we're doing everything in our power to sabotage that job. And so what we want to do tonight is ask and answer two simple questions. What's the job and how do we get it done? What is the Great Commission and how do we, as the people of God, obey the Great Commission? So, question number one, what is the Great Commission? I want to start with one thing. It's not on your notes, but it's in the text. One thing that the Great Commission is not. It is not, verse 6 and 7, worrying about the times when Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel... It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The Great Commission is not speculating and prognosticating and predicting and prophesying when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back. That is not the job. It is not the Great Commission. And Jesus says very plainly, it is not for you to know these things. And yet, if you study church history for 10 minutes, you will find that human beings, Christian people, have an insatiable appetite for speculation about when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. People have been obsessed with it literally for centuries, for millennia. I have been alive on this earth a very, very, very brief, small, tiny 40 years. And in my very, very brief, short, tiny 40 years, I have heard speculation about Jesus' return with the year 1988. 88 reasons Jesus will return in 1988. Some of you bought that book and read that book. I've heard speculation about Saddam Hussein being possibly involved in end times, this, that, or the other in the Middle East. I've heard a lot of end times speculation about Mahmoud Ahmadinejad the quote-unquote president, former president of Iran. Lots of speculation about him as he interacted with the Bushes. Y2K, that's it. The year 2000, it's got to be it. Not Y2K, it's 2012. 2012 is the year. Flared up again. Speculation about Osama bin Laden. And, you know, speculation about 
Barack Obama. He's got to be the Antichrist. Have you looked around the world? Have you heard about all the earthquakes? Did you hear about the fires? Did you know there's a war? Surely this is it. COVID, COVID vaccines, COVID lockdowns, the European Union, Brexit, Vladimir Putin. It just goes on and on and on. Absolute obsession. I've had multiple conversations with people in the last week who very kindly said to me, surely we're in the last days right now, right? To which I said, theologically, yes, we're in the last days. This is the last period of human history before the Lord Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean that we're on a 15-minute clock. People have thought we're on the 15-minute clock running the two-minute drill for 2,000 years. And Jesus says, this is not the job. The job is not speculating about when I'm going to come back. The Father has fixed those times. It is not for you to know those times. And that's not the job. So the next time you go to Mardell and you walk by the bestseller rack, and right there in the middle of it is a best-selling book talking about the latest world event telling you why the world's about to end and Jesus is going to come back, you just keep on walking. Don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. The next time you're scrolling channels and you come across a preacher, I really want to name names, but I won't name names. You come across a preacher, John Hagee, and he's talking about blood moons and this moons and this and that and the other. You just keep going. Go to Sports Center. Go to, go to anything. It doesn't matter. Go to Murder Mystery. Go to... It, Go to professional wrestling. I don't care. Go to something else. Just keep going. Next time you're on Facebook and some, you're scrolling and you're looking at Facebook and you're about 30, 40 minutes in, you feel like it's been 10 minutes, but you're about 30, 40 minutes in and you're rolling and somebody posts something about Jesus is coming back soon, don't like it. Block that person. <laughs> Unfriend them. At the bare minimum, snooze them for 30 days. That's a great feature on Facebook. Just say, 30 days, I don't need you in my life for 30 days. Snooze. That's not the job. It's not the job. What's the job? What is a great commission? Let's think through these passages quickly. Matthew 28, the job is making disciples through evangelism and teaching. Matthew 28, making disciples... How do you make disciples through evangelism and through teaching? So we had Matthew 28 up on the screen a minute ago. Let me put it up again for you to look at with some color coding. Go therefore and make disciples. Grammatically, in the Greek, that's the one command in this passage. There is only one imperative, and the imperative is make disciples. That's a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And having all of that authority, he says, go make disciples. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, you baptize them in the name, singular name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not the names of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but the name of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That call to baptize is the call to evangelize, to share the gospel, and to call sinners to conversion, to repentance and faith. You baptize them, 
And you're not done when you baptize them. There are churches and organizations all over the world who chop the Great Commission off right there. We're going to tell them about Jesus, we're going to dunk them, baptize them, and then we're going to check that box. That's not all of what the Great Commission is. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Both of those things are involved in making disciples. If you lose one or the other, you can't make a disciple. If all you do is call people to conversion and you don't teach them how to follow Jesus, you have not obeyed the Great Commission as a church, as an organization, as an individual. You've not checked that box. If all you do is teach Bible facts and you don't call people to conversion, you just educate them about what the Bible says, you have not fulfilled the Great Commission. You're not allowed to check that box. Both of those things are part of making disciples. Calling people to conversion, baptizing them when they repent and believe, and then teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And when you do that, Jesus is with you to the end of the age. So what is the job? What is the Great Commission? Making disciples through evangelism and teaching. Secondly, let's talk about Mark 16. The Great Commission is proclaiming the gospel to the entire world. I don't have this one on the screen, but maybe you can just flip backwards to Mark 16, verse 15. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, means good news. It's what a Roman herald would do when he would be sent to a town or a province or a region and he would come in with a message from Rome. He would herald, he would proclaim good news. And Jesus says, I'm sending you into all the world. That includes across the street and that includes the other side of the globe. I'm sending you into all of the world to proclaim good news. Let me just make one quick point here when we think about proclaiming good news. We are now 2,000 years after Mark 16, 15. And in many ways, the world is worse than it's ever been and has proverbially, proverbially gone to hell in a handbasket. To be a voice of truth in the United States of America in the year 2022 you're going to have to talk about bad news. It's just because of where we live and the culture that we live in and the worldview that dominates the place we live and the people all around us, you're going to have to talk about bad news. You're going to have to talk about sin. And you're going to have to call a lot of things sin that the world doesn't think are sinful. been a lot of news this last week about the Supreme Court and Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Dobbs and all this stuff and leaks and what's coming out in the summer and all that stuff. You're going to have to be bold enough because of where you live and when you live to say abortion is a sin. That will outrage people, but you have to say it. Regardless of what the Supreme Court has said about what marriage is or isn't, as a Christian person, you're going to have to take your stand and say, marriage 
is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. That's what it is. And the Supreme Court can come down with any kind of decision changing that or altering that or augmenting that, but it doesn't change what it is. It's not up for debate or discussion. And you're going to have to be bold enough to say, you know what, biblically, the notion that your biological sex and your gender can be different is not a biblical concept. All of those things are bad news for people to hear. You're going to have to call sin, sin. You're going to have to have courage to do that. But just calling sin, sin doesn't mean you've obeyed the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is a command to proclaim gospel. Good news. Now, in talking about the good news, you have to talk about some bad news. You have to talk about sin. And you have to confront people where they're at on the things that they're dealing with and wrestling with. You have to be courageous about that. It's not going to make you popular. But you can't stop there. You can't just be a critic. You can't just be negative. You can't just throw stones. You have to call sin, sin, and you can't be afraid to do it, but you also have to tell people good news. And we have good news. Good news is that the holy God has made a way for sinful people like us and like them to be brought into the kingdom of God, to be brought into the family of God. And that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His life, His death, and His resurrection. He paid our sin debt. We sang about that. He paid it. He redeemed us. So When we go out, yes, you have to call sin, sin. And yes, the world is a terrible place. But we have good news to take to the world. So we're going to make disciples through evangelism and teaching. We're going to proclaim gospel to the entire world. Third, we're going to call people to repentance, and we're going to offer the forgiveness of sins. This is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. I'll start in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Calling people to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It is changing your mind about sin. People who are lost have to do that before they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to agree with God about their sin. Whether that's sin that the world says, you, that's bad, or whether that's sin that the world says, bravo, we're proud of you. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to change your mind about sin. You have to change your mind about God. You have to change your mind about how you can be made right with God. You have to agree with God about all of these things. That's what repentance is. And when it genuinely happens, when a change of mind genuinely happens in the life of a sinner, their life will change. Not all at once, not all instantly, but their life will begin to change. 
When you call people to repentance, you talk to them about the forgiveness of their sins. You don't leave them wallowing, embarrassed, shamed, mortified, humiliated about the things that they've done. You say to them, you know what? I have gospel news for you. Jesus paid your sin debt. He redeemed you. And he will forgive your sins. You've got to see them as sins. But he's eager to forgive you. What is a great commission? It's being sent on a mission like Jesus was sent on a mission. This is John 20. It's the shortest version of the Great Commission. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Father sent the Son on a mission of salvation that required suffering. And the Son sends His people on a mission of salvation. Rest assured, it will require some degree of suffering. Not suffering like Jesus suffered. Not suffering in the place of people. Not suffering as a substitute for people. But suffering because we take good news to a lost and dying world. Just like Jesus was sent, we've been sent. What is the Great Commission? Acts chapter 1. It is bearing witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. A witness is somebody who testifies. A witness is somebody who goes on the record and says, this is what I've seen, this is what I know, this is what I've experienced, this is what is true. The Greek word used in Acts 1.8 is a Greek word martus, a witness. It's where we get the English word martyr. A martyr is a witness. We think a martyr is someone who dies for their faith. But the reason we think that is that in early church history, the first Christians who bore witness to what they had seen, Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, often faced Death because they refused to retract their testimony about Jesus. And so this word, to witness, became associated with dying for your faith or being killed for your faith. It's possible, although probably not likely, that any of us will be asked to give our life to bear witness for Jesus. Possible, but not likely. What is 100% certain is that as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been called to be a witness. Maybe that means laying your life down. Maybe not. But it certainly means being willing to testify to what you know to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not just the job of the apostles. That is not just the job of your missions pastor, Chris Harrington. Is not just the job of the pastors we've prayed for over the last five weeks in Kenya. It's not just the job of guys like Cody Cunningham who leave the United States of America to go be missionaries. That is the job of a Christian. The call for a Christian is to bear witness to the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says you're going to do it in Jerusalem, where you're at, in all Judea and Samaria, the area around you, and even to the ends of the earth. You've heard people talk about this. The equivalent for us would be right here in Odessa. 
and in the state of Texas and in the United States and in the North American continent and even to the ends of the earth. Be a witness. We've had 2,000 years to do that. Make disciples, proclaim the gospel, call people to repentance and promise them the forgiveness of sins, to live our lives as sent people on mission and to be a witness to the truth about Jesus. It's not all bad news. The gospel has made amazing progress around the world. You can go lots of places on the earth to the middle of nowhere and find faithful, gospel-believing people. A lot of times Americans have the mindset that we have the gospel here, everyone else needs it, and they're just lost, dying, and if you go on a mission trip, you go and you say, well, they, there's some people here. <laughs> they know Jesus too. In fact, they seem like they know him better than I know him. The gospel has made amazing progress over 2,000 years. But not everyone has heard. The latest statistics tell us that there are literally thousands of people groups representing billions with a B. Billions of people on the earth today who have never heard the good news about Jesus Christ. So there's been a lot of work done. A lot of work done. A lot of money given. A lot of trips taken. A lot of families relocated. A lot of disciples made. Lots of good gospel work done. But there's more gospel work to be done. Which brings us to this question. How do we obey the Great Commission? We'll move through these quickly. These are all from Acts 1. First of all, we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Before these guys, these disciples, these 120 were to go out and do anything, they were to wait for the Holy Spirit to empower them. And when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, there is a dramatic change in their witness. They go rather quickly from hiding, scared, timid, to bold, unafraid, confident. The way you explain that change is the Holy Spirit of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, is to make God's people bold. And it is the job of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about this as we go through the book of Acts. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to change hearts. You notice that nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts are we called to change hearts to save people, to do the actual work of salvation. We're sent to proclaim. We're sent to share gospel news. We're sent to baptize. We're sent to teach and disciple. We're sent out like Jesus was sent out, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit to open eyes to the gospel, to open hearts to the gospel. So, if we're going to do this job, we have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we fight for unity in the church. Pay attention to this as you read through Acts. When the church was united and when they were divided. When they were united and when they were divided. Look at verse 14. It says, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were together and they were together in one accord. 
If you're reading the New Testament, a few weeks ago you read John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. One of the things Jesus prayed for in John 17 is that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. And what you see in the book of Acts is that when God's people are united, the gospel goes forward. And when they're not united, it doesn't. It's true in the book of Acts and it's true today. Show me a church where people are fighting, where there's factions, where there's power groups. There's not a church where the gospel's advancing, invariably. As a church, this will never just happen. It's one of the things we say in our new member class. We want you to fight for the unity of this church. Don't just step back and be passive in it. It's a weird way to say it, but we want you to fight for unity. You have to work for it. We have to be united in what we believe about the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to be united in the work of making disciples, united in the work of the Great Commission. At this point, they're together. They're with one accord. Fight for unity in the church. Thirdly, we just read this, we pray. We pray in recognition of our dependence. Sunday we're going to talk about prayer in the book of Acts. When you think about prayer in Acts or you think about prayer generally, what you're saying when you pray to God is, God, you can do anything and I can't do much. I'm dependent on you. I need you. I can't do it, but you can do it. So we pray in recognition of our dependence. Verse 14, they prayed. Verse 24 and verse 25 in this decision, they prayed. They prayed. Americans usually think, I'm guilty of this. Put me at the head of the list. Americans usually think they're too busy to pray. I got too much to do. I got to go, 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 go. Martin Luther understood the importance of prayer. He said this, work, work from morning until late night. I have so much to do, I have to spend the first three hours in prayer. I can't do all the stuff that I have to do. That's what he's saying. I'm dependent on God. So before I go out and try to do, I've got to pray. And I've got to acknowledge that I need him. Pray in recognition of our dependence. There's a place for getting busy. The angel told the disciples, why are you standing here looking around? Don't stand here and look around. You've got stuff to do. There's also a place for praying and for acknowledging how dependent we are on God. Number four, submit to the authority of Scripture. I'd really love to spend more time on this. We're just flying over this back part of the chapter. These disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit These disciples are together, they're praying together, and they're reading the Bible. We know they're reading the Bible because Peter stands up to say something. That's not surprising. Peter's the first guy to stand up and say something, and you're ready for Peter to say something stupid. He actually says something pretty good. He talks about the Scriptures, verse 16. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke the Scriptures through David. David wrote them, but the Holy Spirit was speaking through David. That's the inspiration of Scripture. And they're trying to connect the Old Testament, the Scriptures, to Jesus. That's a great way to read the Bible. 
What does this teach me about Jesus? Peter, you'll notice the punctuation and the quotation marks in English kind of help you. He starts off in verse 16 talking about David and the Holy Spirit. And then there's a parenthetical comment in verse 18, 19. And then back to verse 20, Peter jumps back in. And he quotes the book of Psalms. He quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And he connects both of them to the situation with Jesus and Judas. They're trying to just follow the Bible. Follow the Bible. Sometimes I hear people say, we are now 2,000 years into church history. The Great Commission is not done. We've had enough time for Bible study. We need to go out and preach. Like, stop the Bible studies. How many times do you need to study the Bible? How many more times do you need to hear me or Corey or Chris or your whoever, Ron, teach the Bible? You've heard it enough. We just need to go out and do. I promise you, If you find a group of people who don't want to study the Scriptures and read the Scriptures and submit to the authority of the Scriptures, if you find a group of people like that who call themselves a church and they don't want to get together and study the Bible and sit under the authority of God's Word, I guarantee you that those people, that, air quotes, church, cares nothing about the Great Commission. Absolutely nothing. It's universally true. If we are going to Make disciples, proclaim good news, be witnesses. We've got to submit to the authority of Scripture. Lastly, we rest in the sovereignty of God. Verse 24, 25, and 26. Can you imagine a pastor search team doing this? We've gone through all the resumes, we've done all the interviews, we got two guys. We can't decide, so we're going to flip a coin. Heads, Bobby. Tails, Timmy. It may not be how we would do it today. You may look back on that and say, that's a strange way to do things. But what's clear is that these guys believed, these 120 people believed, that God in heaven was sovereign over big things like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You can see that in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We'll talk about it Sunday. They believed that what happened to Jesus was what God had predestined to take place. God was sovereign over all of it. That's a big thing, the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. And God was sovereign over all of it. And they believed that God's sovereign over the little things. we got two guys. They're both qualified. We love them both. They've been with us. They check all the boxes. Cast lots, draw straws, flip a coin. God's in control. Sometimes when we think about the Great Commission and the work of the Great Commission, you feel a weight on your shoulders. Chris tells you how many kids are hungry in Kenya, and I tell you there's billions of people that have never heard about Jesus, and I tell you, we need a bigger world missions offering, and we talk about all these things we need to do, and we feel this weight on our shoulder. Look, there's some things we need to do, including praying. There's some things we need to do. But at the end of it, we step back and we say, look, it's not on us. God doesn't need us. We'd love for him to use us, but he certainly doesn't need us. And if we don't go with the power of God behind us, we can't do any of it anyways. 
So yes, we pray. Yes, we go. Yes, we sacrifice. Yes, we expect suffering. But we also rest in the sovereignty of God.